Welcome to the Governance Podcast here at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre is Distinguished Fellow and holder of the Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. And she's also a Distinguished Professor Emerita of Economics and of History and Professor Emerita of English and of Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of many books, the most recent of which is Bettering Humanomics, A New and Old Approach to Economic Science, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. Deirdre, it's very good to have you with us here today. Well, I'm extremely pleased to be here. I'm only sorry that I that it didn't overlap with the Queen's Jubilee <laughs> and the New Zealand Test match. Right. Well, that's next weekend, I believe. So, yeah, uh, or certainly the Jubilee is. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be um, in the middle of what purports to be one of the biggest national rail strikes uh, for yeah, 50 I, years over that period. So it could I be quite interesting. Oh, yeah. So I wonder if we could start off just by talking about the this new book, Bettering Humanomics, and and think about this theme of humanomics that you address there. Yeah. So my sense in in reading the book is that you you really have two themes. One is thinking about what might be the best way to defend, broadly speaking, a liberal order of society yes. based on open markets or what you'd refer to as trade-tested betterment. Yeah. And connecting that with debates in essentially the methodology of social science or the methodology of economics in particular. Yeah. So your argument seems to be that the kind of economics that people practice is both inaccurate in many ways, but also that it lacks a kind of capacity to inspire people to yeah. believe in a liberal order. And the liberal order at the moment seems to be under threat from multiple directions. Oh, yes. So I wonder if we could start by thinking about what are the threats to the liberal order as you see them, and then sort of try to work through how the role of ideas relate to that. Well, the, the, the obvious threats are Putin in Ukraine. And I, I think the, the advantage of the astounding success of the, the Ukrainians is that it's made clear, even to people who are not paying attention to politics or certainly not high political theory, that the issue is not really left or right. It's it's a, a it's a liberal society versus a tyranny, um, but you know, these the threats are are myriad, as you point out. In my own country, I, I don't need to uh, remind people after the horrible shooting right. in in uh, shootings because now it gets to be every week in Buffalo and in Texas that. Um, <clears throat> That there is a threat from the right, although again, it's not the right, it's populism more than anything else. It's the idea that a man on the white horse uh, uh, will make, make the nation great. Um, again, mm. uh, but of course, there are threats to, to liberalism from, from the left as well. We're uh, founding. Neil Ferguson, other people, and I are, are founding a new 
university in Texas, indeed, in Austin, called the University of Austin, that that tries to um, uh, make a space where where um, people can talk free of the threats from both both the left and the right to to sweet talk, as I call it. And, and I think we need more sweet talk. We need to get back to real liberalism. But the problem is that the the programs isn't quite the word, but the the attitudes that the men and women on the white horses bring are more inspiring. I was once myself a socialist, and I know more socialist songs than than my socialist friends. <laughs> um, and uh, sort of voluntary slavery has an appeal to people. They came from families which are socialist enterprises or authoritarian enterprises, and it was it was comfortable to be a child. So. We need to, we people who believe in non-slave societies need to inspire people again. It happened once, so maybe we can do it again. But could you say a little bit about how you think that sort of inspirational model, if you like, or way of talking about liberalism, how has that been lost? Is it that people in positions of political authority who are partly informed by people yeah. from universities yeah. have become taken over by a sort of technocratic mindset. Yes. Um, or is it something else? What, what's yeah. the process which has meant that liberalism has become uninspiring? To there, 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 are, there are two um, sides of the non-liberal non coin. One is the decision by economists on economists and calculators as Burke expressed it to uh, to 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 banish <coughs> ethical <coughs> pardon me, and um, uh, persuasive <coughs> emotionally persuasive talk from their enterprises. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, was was became solid in economics in the 1930s. So the economists claim uh, Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman cl claim to be doing positive economics. Hmm. We're just scientists here. Don't worry. Hmm. There's no ethical matter here. We're not preaching. Even my friend James Buchanan, though he preached all the time, was hostile to. Uh, on preaching. <coughs> and on the other hand, more widely, Marx still lives. Hmm. And it's thought to be nice to poor people to treat them as children uh, instead of allowing them to have jobs. Hmm. And um, I'm quite shocked, by the way, here in. In, in, in London for a few days, of how many people I see sleeping rough. Mm -hmm. See, it's, it's even more than in Chicago, mm -hmm. and it's um, it's appalling that that these. It's it's not that they can't find jobs, 
it's that um, uh, that that the social sa safety net, as people conceive it, organized by the by the state, um, has made um, employment and housing mm -hmm. much harder to get. Well, it's funny you say that because we the, the situation here at the moment is very. In some ways, it's quite odd because the the official unemployment rate yeah, very low. is actually very low. It's like three point two percent. Sure, it is in the United States. The lowest it's been in a very long time. <clears throat> yep. However, there are very large numbers of people who've actually left the workforce. Yep. Partly after COVID, I mean, it's like there are millions of people and yep. quite a lot on what are called out of work uh, benefits. Yeah, it's the same in the states. Now, the people that you see uh, on the street, and I agree, that is very shocking. I'm not sure what the situation is there, whether those are people who are on benefits or oh, whether they are outside so. of the system. I don't think they're on I don't think they're on, yeah. on I don't think they're on benefits at all. Yeah. I think they're they have uh, various kinds of problems yep. that have uh, have excluded them from from yep. ordinary unemployment insurance, which you've had since 1911. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, the, it's exactly the same in the United States. They're not exactly the same, but it, it's. Uh, but if it's, we if we if we take that issue, so you know, if you talk about how shocking this is to see, yeah, um, you know, the gut reaction of people, many people, would be that capitalism is failing to provide for these people. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I would say that it's that it's something like the opposite. I venture now. This is a speculation. I'm an economic historian. I I, um, I haven't done the homework on this, so I'm not sure of it. But I would venture to say that there are more people sleeping rough in London now, as a percentage of the population, than there were in 1900. And the reason is that housing mm -hmm. has become vastly more expensive mm -hmm. yep. relative to 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 anything. Yeah. Um, from from um, urban planning, uh, which is supposed to help people, but ends up hurting them. Mm. Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because um, I mean I've been intrigued. We've had these arguments in the the last week about the government introducing a windfall tax on energy companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of the argument for that is the the companies have done nothing to deserve the accidental circumstances which have caused a shortage in in oil and gas and have driven up the price. Yeah, yeah. But you could apply the same logic to yeah, people's exactly. houses. Uh, the exactly. value of people's houses has quadrupled in the last 20 years, yeah. not because of anything they've done, exactly. but because of the restriction in the supply. That's and when exactly people true. try to increase supply, many people object to that on various environmental grounds or other sorts of grounds. So there's an interesting sort of um, mismatch there in the way that people see those issues. Oh, I, I was on a, on a panel at the... Uh, at the at the National Theatre yeah. a few years ago, um, and the, the audience was mainly left-wing, I could tell by the pattern of uh, applause, and I was not the most uh, right-wing, and I don't consider myself right-wing. I'm, I'm liberal, and I'm not on the, yeah. on the spectrum, but I'm classified as right-wing, and when I said the housing crisis in England, and most particularly in London, is caused by planning permission, they hissed. Hmm. And I, I knew hmm. that this inconsistent hmm. idea that you can cut the supply of housing, hmm. yet nonetheless somehow provide for the poor, 
yeah. was was operating in their minds. Yeah. Well, there are, I mean, there are two there are two things that have happened. I mean, there is there has been um, significant immigration, so yeah. you have lots of people coming in. Yeah, you bet. Um, but even before the immigration, this pattern of rising prices, I mean, this is something I did in my, looked at in my PhD thesis, sure. actually. It's been going on since the 1950s. Sure it has. I, I, um, have, a, I have a friend who teaches at the LSC. <clears throat> he has a house in St. Albans that he bought in 1967, I believe. Yeah. And uh, he said he could now, with the channel, <laughs> he could, he he could live in the north of France on a farm and commute to the school to teach every once in a while hmm. on the capital gain in St. Albans. St. Albans is not that close to London. Hmm. But but let's pursue this. Though. So if we, th if we think about that issue, how do you address the, the housing crisis? Yeah. And relate it to this debate about how economics is communicated. Yeah. Some people might argue that in order to explain to people um, the nature of that crisis, they do need to be able to understand sort of supply and demand, the impact that controls and regulations might have, perhaps in quite a technical way. Well, is that right? Or no, is there no. another way of... No, it's not right. And it's, it's too hard. Look, I'm not a natural economist. I, I've been an economist since I was a second year uh, student in, at university at Harvard College. And I love economics and I practice it. Practice it. Isn't that wonderful? But it took me years to understand as simple a thing as that prices, according to economists, and they're, they're correct, are matters of efficiency, not of justice. Mm -hmm. That is that, that the wonderful sainted nun of your acquaintance pays the same for milk as you do. Is is not just, I suppose. Although I suppose it is too. But it, you you might think it's not just. But if you don't do it, the supply of milk is grossly distorted and goes to the wrong people. Hmm. So, no, it's too hard. Um, and and you can see it's too hard from the amazing popular success of uh, books like Tomat. Thomas Piketty? Yeah. Yep. Tomah Piketty on inequality or Mariana Mazzucato on uh, industrial planning. And then she has a second book on, uh, on how we ought to uh, uh, pay for the overhead of the society. Hmm. And, and as I've said about Piketty, in a, in a recent review in the TLS, it's it's based on extremely bad technical economics, mm -hmm. but that doesn't matter. It appeals. So the appeal of liberalism has to be through artists, through rock musicians, through filmmakers, through through the people that. You and I, as academics, might influence, mm -hmm. but they're the ones who tell the stories, and it's through stories. Um, stories like uh, the occasional Hollywood product in praise of entrepreneurship, 
mm-hmm. and supply and demand. The, mm-hmm. More commonly, the the corporate executives in Hollywood uh, produce movies attacking corporate executives. Yeah. So so there there's this kind of Marxoid, I'd call it, um, atmosphere that, you know, aren't you in favor of helping the poor? Aren't you, you're a terrible person if you don't um, agree with uh, with statism. And again, it's this model of the household. Um, in, in a famous speech in 19, 1928 in the Swedish parliament, a Swedish politician expressed the ideal of Sweden becoming a national home with Alva and Alva and Gunnar in charge, yeah, in Stockholm. Okay, so so what you're saying is you need a a sort of counter vision, a sort of counter set of images or rhetorics or um, plays or productions. Yep. That strikes me as being a, a very long-term project. It is. Um, and does it hold out any hope for the immediate future if we have to wait that long for... Well, the truth is that most people accede to voluntary trade in their ordinary lives. They get indignant when the price of what the Americans call gas, and you can stop and get gas with your food in the United States, um, or when their rent goes up or something. And then, then they start using these, uh, what I'm calling Marxoid um, complaints uh, that the, the working class is being exploited. But for the most part, when they buy a, buy a, buy a Cadbury's, Whole nut, and I, I tell you, the, the, they make an imitation of whole nut in the United States, and it's nothing <laughs> like the one here. So I've been gobbling <laughs> Cadbury's whole nut here. Um, they don't object; they find it fine. And when when they get paid for their services, they say, "Yeah, that's that's good. I, I deserve this." So that basic non-statist hmm. assumption. Is strong and it's it's I think it's especially well it's it's a mixed bag but it's it's especially strong strong in Britain and the United States in 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 France it's not so obvious. I wonder if I could explore what I think is a at least because of the events of the last couple of years but maybe maybe it goes back further than that that I think there might be a bit a bit of a tension there yeah um, or at least what I'm seeing in the culture and that is what you're suggesting is that in a sense. Um, a kind of ideological messaging is what's really important. Yes. And you're suggesting that some of the opponents who have, of liberalism who have been successful have that messaging, which is inspiring. Yes. But one of the things that we've seen in the, the last couple of years is this suggestion that we ought to follow science on things. Yeah, We've yeah, certainly yeah. seen this in terms of the response to the pandemic. And um, in a number of 
spheres of life, people will say, you're being ideological. You are not yeah, yeah. pursuing the science. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, you're saying people respond to mission statements and yeah. ideological visions. But on the other, there seems to also be this demand in the public culture to know what does the science say? Yeah. yeah How well, do you square those, those things? Well, you know, the, uh, Harry, Harry uh, Collins, the, the, the great sociologist of, of science here at Cardiff, and I are in the midst of a, of a paper on exactly this issue. Is there a scientific truth that we need to pay attention to? And I think there is in science, in uh, economic science, yeah. and historical science, and and biological science, and and so forth. But it's it's not truth with a capital T. It's not such as will be revealed, as an Anglican like me thinks. I uh, at the uh, at the second coming. It's provisional and revisable, and certainly in the in the COVID nineteen epidemic, the revisions have been as striking hmm. as the uh, as 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 the uh, in in contrast to the calls to follow the science because the science keeps hmm. wobbling a bit. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to it, but it does mean that it's not a that it's not a knockdown argument. And uh, the the problem is to explain, as we were saying before, the problem is to to explain technicalities of epidemiology or of economics, and it it's just too hard. It's it's too hard for people to understand uncertainties in model mm. modeling. In, in both epidemiology yeah. and economics, yeah. um, it was hard for me. It's hard for them, and I'm a am a PhD. I have a PhD in economics, so I I can I can understand them, but but it's hard to explain. So we need to not dismantle science or to think, oh well, it's just a bunch of toffs at universities and they. they they don't actually know anything. There's an awful lot of talk like that. For example, when the Queen complained to the LSE economists back in the 2008-9 that they hadn't predicted hmm. the great the great recession then, um, she was just completely misunderstanding what economists can do. Yeah, they can't predict the future, hmm. although they're constantly being asked. To do exactly that. Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting point because, again, there seems to be a, another tension. If you think of certainly the public discussion in the UK, but I think this has been true in the, the United States as well over the last five to 10 years, yeah. there's a minister in the current, current government, Michael Gove, who was scolded yeah. by a lot of people for saying people have had enough of experts. Yeah. This was prior to the, the Brexit yeah. uh, referendum uh, vote. Um, but at the same time, there also seems to be, if you like, as well as we have this kind of populist suspicion of experts, yeah, yeah. you also have a populist demand for experts. Yeah, there seems exactly. to be a lot of people out there who think that, oh, well, surely the experts know what the science yeah. tells us, yeah. whether it's about economic problems yeah. or public health problems or any other problem. And the idea that there might be complexity that we don't That's know right. isn't something people want to recognize. They don't want to hear it. They, 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 there's, there, there's populist simplifications on both sides. but. 
that's not fresh news about yeah. politics. Yeah. So it has always been. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the abandonment of the corn laws mm-hmm. in the 1840s, as the Duke said, the damned rotten potatoes, uh, um, was, was not, uh, <laughs> it had rational scientific elements to it, the rise of, uh, of economics. But it was also an appeal to emotions of various kinds. And this is the way, and, and, they're, and as you're pointing out, they're contradictory. But, you know, um, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. Um, and if, if the self is the great British public, it's completely unsurprising mm. that there are contrary, even in the same mind, mm. um, contradictory images. A, a, a desire to, an admirable desire to help the poor combined with a, a belief in supposedly factual or scientific propositions such as that you can have a high minimum wage and that'll help the poor that actually hurt the poor mm. or have protection of British industry. Mm. Uh, alas, our own uh, uh, president is a great improvement on the, the previous one. He is also a protectionist mm. the way Donald Trump was. Yeah. I wonder if we could just sort of go connect this back to the themes of the book and think about the role of um, economists here. Yeah. So obviously you, you would want to have, I think, a in a sense, a larger role for economists in public life and debate, provided they're communicating in a different way. Well, it's not just communication. It's that they have to read yeah. and they don't. Uh, economists were once uh, um, well-read intellectuals, and now they're not. They're specialists. Mm-hmm. And they feel perfectly justified in not reading any books. Mm. Your um, your office, or this is someone else's office. No, no it's, this, it's, this it's my, your office, as I see my, my own, <laughs> own, own books up there, um, is filled with books. And they're not just about economics. They're about politics and history and, and ethics and various other things with, and philosophy. That's how economists once were. And then... Really, since the war, they've become um, extremely narrow. And it's, it's been so they, as I said, they, they've made this crazy decision that, that ethics has nothing to do with economics, which is insane. Um, uh, and, 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 and the blessed Adam Smith, au contraire, uh, um, <laughs> believe very strongly that the economy and ethics were together. Hmm. So I'm, I'm the, 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 that's why I call it a new and, and old hmm. way of thinking about economics because John Stuart Mill and uh, Alfred Marshall and, uh, uh, and Adam Smith, and for that matter, John Maynard Keynes, hmm. viewed economics as part of a larger conversation 
about what a society should be hmm. and how people should act and what a human life is. And that's all been dropped. Well, it's interesting you say that because even in what strikes me at the moment, it's, 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 it's certainly in this country, it's, I don't know what it's like in the United States, but it, it, here it's very striking is that we're in the middle of um, an inflation uh, yeah. crisis potentially. Yeah. And yet if you listen to the public media, economists' voices actually are surprisingly absent. Yeah. There are very few actual economists who seem to be equipped to even speak about inflation. Yeah. Is that because um, there's only a very small number of people are actually specialized in monetary theory or what have you? Or is it more a sort of general ref reflection that um, the way that economics is moved, it's actually quite far removed from practical policy type questions that, that actually affect the day-to-day um, way that people live their lives. Well, I think it's true. It's uh, true of both. There's been a specialization in macro, uh, which would have puzzled Keynes, for example, and certainly Marshall. Um, and then, 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 too, there's an increasing technical um, burden yeah. of macroeconomics, which has become almost insanely so. Uh, uh, I have a, a uh, um, there's this great raising of the mathematical ante hmm. to be in this game, hmm. which uh, is um, is foolish. It, it's it's not necessary to know a lot of um, real analysis, as it's called, mm. to be an economist, and yet all economists are trained in it. And so it's becoming, um, as you suggest, more and more. Um, <sighs> how many angels dance on the head of a pin? Are you a, a, a big Indian? Or a small Indian, as, as, as uh, Swift put it, uh, in, in, in cracking your hard-boiled egg. So, but it, there's a third thing, which is that the current inflation is somewhat puzzling. Mm -hmm. There was an enormous increase, we monetarists note, in the liquidity of the world economy. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the, the balances, the, uh, the retained earnings of corporations these days are stunning. There they sit with billions mm -hmm. in their bank account. Mm -hmm. And yet, and uh, consumer cr credit is very large. You'd think, my word, uh, there, there, sh there, there should have been already an inflation. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't. Now, partly it's because we monetarists, I guess I call myself, made a big mistake, which I realized a long time ago, so I'm a smarter monetarist, that it's only true worldwide, not country by country. And uh, my colleagues in macro keep talking about country by country macro as though that's the world we're in. As though it were 1955 or something, with uh, yeah. import controls and yeah. investment yeah. controls and all kinds of things. 
uh, making walls around economies. Yeah. So a lot of the money that's been produced has actually gone all over the place. It's gone all over the yeah. place. It's gone into Chinese bank accounts in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so I, I, I think there's a coherent explanation for it. Um, I, I'm very made very uneasy by this claim that it's uh, supply restrictions and so on. I find that, um, well, in a way, it's not macroeconomics, it's micro. It's about uh, supply restrictions are about uh, about relative prices, hmm. not about um, uh, prices in general. So I, I, you can see that I'm somewhat confused about it. Yeah. And so are all my colleagues. So, so, so wisely they shut up. But it is striking to me how, if you listen to the, the media, very few economists will be debating. I know, I know what you for mean. For example, monetarism in the way that you, they were I know in the mean. 1970s. Yeah, I mean, 1970s you they you actually the... had a popular discussion about that, exactly. which, okay, it wasn't at the very technical level, but it was a, a discernible debate about. Paul, both Paul Sanderson yeah. on the Keynesian side yeah. and my former colleague Milton Friedman yeah. on, the, on the monetarist side had columns in the mag in the very popular magazine Newsweek. Yeah. yeah. And every two weeks they, they yeah. would I think it was every two, they 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 trade doing columns. So there was you know, it, it may be that there's not a Milton Friedman or a uh, Paul Samuelson out there. I mean Paul, uh, Paul Krugman and a few others are uh, try to do that, but uh, I don't know. It's not I, I think there was more faith in the predictive powers of economists then, mm. and maybe less after the experience of the last 10 years. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. One could find out by public opinion survey. Okay, let, let, let's move on. I wonder if we could go to one of your arguments in, in, in this book, which sort of connects to um, one of the big themes of your work, actually, over the last sort of ten or fifteen years or so, and that's the role of the role of institutions. Yeah. Um, so, in this book and also in the the Bourgeois trilogy, you're yeah. very critical of um, what you call the Northian the new institutionalist view, and even more so in a, in a book which is supposed to be out by now. This should be coming another volume in this. Um, also from the University of Chicago Press. Well, we look forward to maybe we could do a podcast on that as well. Yeah, um, but you're you're very critical of this idea that the sort of rational choice, if you like, explanation of what institutions do. Which, in brief, the argument is if you have incentives that are sorry, institutions that are incentive compatible, mm-hmm. uh, where people yeah. know that they can keep the gains from yeah. Um, yeah. any commercial activity that they're engaged in then you will have economic growth. And your argument is, uh, no, for institutions to function well, they actually need a surrounding set of ideas, which actually legitimize things like entrepreneurial action. And what I wanted to ask you is, some critics would say, this isn't a view I endorse, but I understand where people are coming from. Some critics might say that you're going down the route of a, purely sort of subjective effective formation yeah. um, of things. So, you know, is it simply a matter of what people think in terms of whether an institution works or 
do institutions have some kind of real existence that actually makes a difference in, in your account? They have real existence. There's a, uh, there's a central criminal court in London, which I walked past yesterday on my way to St. Paul's. Um, and if, if, if the judge puts on the black cap as in the old days, yeah. your goose is cooked. Um, it's, it's, so these things have real effects, of course they do. Uh, but the, but they're, they're well functioning as against mm. their nominal functioning. Mm. Depends every time on ideas, ethics, mm. ideology. Mm. You can give some tyrannical country uh, all the lawyers in in the country, white wigs, and hmm. silk even, gowns, hmm. but you won't get English law. Hmm. For with all its imperfections, yeah. you won't get it. Yeah. Um, you can you 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 can build a parliament, as in as, as in Russia right now. You can have a parliament. But if the parliament is run by thugs mm. and there's a grand thug in charge, mm. it doesn't work. It's, this is a point that, that Tocqueville made and that, that yep. many other people have made, that yep. it's, the, it's the spirit, the move in, in, in French that, that, that are, it's, it's not just that they're necessary, they're often sufficient. You can have very crummy or, um, institutions or none, mm. as in Hong Kong mm. after the war. In 1947, Hong Kong and the so-called mainland were at the same appalling one or two dollars a day income. Now Hong Kong's income is almost as high as that of the United States. And that, that wasn't because there were all kinds of British institutions laid on. Mm. There were a few courts and English trained judges. And then the Hong Kongians made their own law. Most business doesn't depend on law. It depends on leaving people alone mm. to make as reasonably ethical people, or at least people who see that if they cheat all the time, they're not going to get, uh, they're not going to stay in business. There, there's this great intermediate area of what Hayek called spontaneous order, that in most other of our activities, except the economy, everyone agrees is enormously important. Language. Here we are speaking. There's no central planning. There's no planned, designed institution of English. Hmm. And yet, surprise, surprise, here it is. The same is true of friendship. Um, Xi Jinping would like to regulate the friendship of his, uh, of his, of his uh, subjects, but we don't do it in most countries. Um, music, science, art, painting has no central planner and no 
It has institutions, the Tate or something, that's nice, or the uh, St. Martin's in the Field uh, Orchestra, if that's what you call it. Uh, yeah, but music and painting would evolve whether or not those institutions existed. Right. And if there's a strong enough ethic right. of uh, so-called progress in art or music, I happen to think there's uh, Mozart and Manet are about the, the top of the pops, but that, that's, that's a separate opinion. Um, the arts and sciences will evolve. The reason that I asked this is actually connecting to the issue that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. I'm thinking here about the, if you like, the enemies of liberalism, yeah. as you would understand it. The people who talk about the importance of a, a mission commitment from the state or from other entities. Yeah, from the state is the problem. And I think some of them seem to be giving the idea that if only people believed in the mission commitment of the state, yeah. if only people believed in socialism, yeah. then it would actually work. Well, that's the old argument under communism, the nature of man yeah. under socialism. Yeah. And uh, it's been tried. It's not as if, as the as young people are always saying these days, well, you know, we ought to try socialism. Mm. It's not as if it hasn't been tried. Yeah. We have splendid examples in, in Cuba and uh, in Venezuela of trying socialism. And it doesn't work, it's terrible. It impoverishes people, Le um, leaves the people uh, ignorant. Uh, so, <laughs> no, um, it's, that's not the path forward. The path forward is to treat people like adults. Yeah, but the re to, to go back to, to the argument there, what, so what you're saying is it's not purely ideas in the sense of it, no. you know, certain ideas, doesn't matter how much people believe in them. Yeah, that's right. They're not going to work. That's right. But even oh, that's a good point. Yeah, institutions that's a good good point. that are good, yeah. like uh, what you call trade-tested betterment, are only sort of activated yeah. to have their real effect if people believe in them. That's right. And it happened once. Uh, after Adam Smith, but not entirely because of him, after Jung and, and the Scottish Enlightenment, not the French Enlightenment. The French Enlightenment emphasized reason, the reason half of Enlightenment. But the Scottish Enlightenment emphasized liberty, which is the other half. And we could have done without for a long time uh, the reason half of the Enlightenment, which in fact continued to develop into such horrors as Comtean uh, positivism and then into, into socialism and, and fascism indeed. If you like nationalism and you like socialism, maybe you like national socialism. Uh, that, that reason idea that we can, uh, uh, we, can, we can build the world anew as though we know how, knew how to build the world mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, was a French idea completely unsurprisingly, the French had been exercising it for uh, a couple of hundred years before the French re re Revolution. But the idea that a man's a man for all that, as Burns uh, expressed it, that's a Scottish 
I, you could say British more generally, but the closer you got to the centers of power in London, the more people believed in the power of the state. Up in Scotland, they could express skepticism. Adam Smith famously said, the man of system believes that he can move people in a great society with the same ease as he can move pieces on a chessboard. And that statist conviction is an enemy of a free society. So how, though, do we actually, you know, you're saying that it's worked in the past. It happened sort of once. Combination of, of institutions and ideas behind them to activate them. Yeah. Now, reading your works, it strikes me that that was, in many ways, it was, a, it was an accident. Yeah, it was an accident. And when things are it, accidental it, like that, yeah. how, it doesn't mean we can reproduce the accident. That's true. <laughs> it, 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 it happened in Northwestern Europe in a tiny corner of this quarrelsome uh, northwestern corner of the mm. Eurasian landmass. Uh, and it could have happened in China. It could have happened in Japan or the Ottoman Empire or no, probably northern India. Yeah. But it didn't uh, for, for a series of accidents, as I explained in a, in a long, um, a long bu bu book of mine called um, Bourgeois Equality. Um, things turned out right. The Protestant Reformation, which got the idea in people's head that they could take over their own religious life and didn't have to depend on priests. That's its main effect, I think, so far as, as liberalism is concerned, could have failed. Um, if, if the Spanish Armada had uh, landed um, on the south coast of England, uh, the best army in Europe. Uh, England could have gone back to being uh, Roman Catholic and Holland then would have been surrounded and Protestant might have, Protestant might have failed. Had the English um, Civil War not happened, if Archbishop Laud had been and Charles II had been reasonable people instead of fools, uh, the, the idea, as uh, Richard Rumbold expressed it when he was being hanged in Edinburgh in 1685, would not have flourished. The idea that I think there is no man born of God above another, for no man comes into the world with a saddle on his back, neither any booted and spurred to ride him. Without the American Revolution and the French Revolution, if you see what I mean, they, these these all could have gone the other way. Yeah. But but that raises, I think, a very an interesting challenge. I mean, what, I'm, I'm thinking back to the first of these podcasts I did, which was with Barry Weingast. Yes, who, you yes. know, would be he's, one of the new institutions he's, you're critical he's, of. He's, he's a sweet man and a very intelligent man, and he's a, he, but he's a frenemy. But he, but he, I think. It, also recognizes if you, in some of his later, more recent work that the institutions that he advocates um, arose by accident. Yeah. Um, and I think, in a sense, the problem for, for his theory 
for your theory, mm -hmm. but for, for anyone who values uh, liberalism, yeah, um, is that in a way this is quite a bleak view because it means that we can't necessarily plan how liberalism yeah, yeah. might happen in the future. If, if yeah. it happened by accident in the past, we don't necessarily yeah. have a recipe yeah. for how we can make it happen again. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point, which hasn't occurred to me. And um, you know, I'm, I'm so, so anxious to argue against historical determinists like yeah. like, like Marxists or, or uh, on the left and, and uh, um, conservatives on the right. Uh, that I that I um, that it hasn't occurred to me that that an accident is precarious, but there are things we can do. I mean, actually, do is the problem. The word do is the problem. Don't just stand there. Do something means you're appealing to the state, mm -hmm. because the only we available for us is the state. But no, no, we should go on preaching, go on writing books. And hoping we can influence the country music writers mm -hmm. and the filmmakers and the journalists. And whereas in country music we say the rubber meets the road, it's those people who we need to convince. And uh, oh, the convince isn't the word I'd use, persuade. And I, I, but, but as you're suggesting, there's no guarantees even then. Because as I keep saying, slavery is attractive. Hmm. People grew up as children. Hmm. So another word for liberalism would be adultism. And the trouble is that a lot of people don't want to be adults. They'll, they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, I want to be adult, but then they won't want to accept the onerous responsibilities of paying child support or showing up for work hmm. or, you know, being a, 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 a responsible uh, mother. Okay, so Deirdre, I wonder if you could say, just to sort of round off really, what's what's next for you or do we have, you mentioned another book that's coming out after Bettering? Yes, it's, 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 is, it, is it already out? Or? It's supposed to be out by yeah. now from the University of Chicago Press. Yeah. It's called um, Against uh, Positivism or something like that. I forget the full title, <laughs> but it's it's just 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 Google my name. Yeah, okay. You find it. And uh, yeah, I'm working on a, uh, on a book on a book on economic history, um, revisiting some work that I did as long ago as fifty years ago. I'm that old mm. on, <laughs> on English agricultural history, open fields and yeah, enclosures. Yeah. And I'm about three quarters of the way through that. And then I've also got a book on theology aimed at theologians called uh, what's it called It's called God in Mammon. Of public theology for an age of commerce, and it's attempting to persuade my progressive Christian friends. I mentioned I was an Anglican um, that you don't have to be a socialist to be a follower of Jesus Christ or Muhammad or uh, the Hindu gods. You you. You, you don't have to be a, a statist. Hmm. 
and uh, then I'm going to do an autobiography, and I, I just got to keep scribbling. Well, I was going to say, how do you how do you have the time to actually produce this amount of stuff? I mean, what what's a typical day in Deirdre well, Makovsky's life? Well, do you just get up and start writing, and that's yeah, it? more or less. That's the advantage of not having any. And speaking of responsibility, not having any responsibilities to teach, which I haven't had for a while. Um, although, you know, in, in a way we're all teaching, and that's kind of my point, that we're, we're preaching. Yeah. And we don't just want to preach to the converted. We, we, we want to convert some people. I'm having some success, and so are, are you, Mark, in persuading some young people, a good many young people, to think, think seriously. I have a column I've just started, for example, in the, in the largest mag, um, newspaper in, in Brazil uh, that's translated into Portuguese. And there are a surprisingly large number of young student age um, mm -hmm. uh, people in Brazil, kids in Brazil, who uh, are open to these arguments because mm -hmm. they've, they've experienced mm -hmm. populism and mm -hmm. fascism and socialism. Mm -hmm. In their own in their own yep. lifetimes. Yeah. Well, I'm look, certainly looking forward to uh, reading the new books in the way I've uh, enjoyed reading the, the the current one, Better in Human Economics, and the Bourgeois uh, trilogy. So, thank you very much, Deirdre, and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you. I, I come to I, I, I come to London every chance I get. Uh, hey. A woman who is tired of London is tired of life. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much.